Live from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, conservation voters of Pennsylvania, Seeds, Penn Future, and Delaware Valley Action are joining together this Saturday for a Pike County Environmental Community Conversation. We'll talk to Ed Gregert from Delaware Valley Action about the important environmental issues facing Pike County. New York Focus, it's the independent newsroom that Radio Catskill has partnered with, New York's only nonprofit statewide newsroom, providing in-depth journalism that explains how decisions decisions are made that are made in Albany impact communities across the state. They're conducting a listener survey to better understand how to better meet the information needs of New Yorkers. We'll tell you how you can get involved. And today is the 6th Annual Student Press Freedom Day. Student journalists and supporters are raising awareness about the challenges they face. We hear from our student journalist, Marin Scott. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Cell phone service has been disrupted across the U.S. this morning. NPR's Tristan Plunkett reports the outage tracking site, Down Detector, says it's received more than 70,000 incidents, mainly from AT&T customers. The reports began early this morning with customers saying they've been unable to make calls or send text messages. Multiple cities also put out warnings on social media about disruption to their 911 services, including in California, Michigan, Virginia, and Texas. AT&T has acknowledged on its website that it's working to resolve the issue. Down Detector also notes other mobile carriers, including Verizon and T-Mobile, are receiving similar reports, but not nearly to the same extent. NPR's Tristan Plunkett reporting. A lawsuit by the Mexican government against five Arizona gun dealers has its first hearing today. A federal judge will consider the defendant's motion to dismiss the case. The Mexican lawsuit alleges the dealers knowingly participate in illegal sales to traffickers who arm drug cartels in Mexico. From Arizona Public Media, Daniel Camara has more. Today's hearing follows a similar case a judge upheld a few weeks ago. A $10 billion lawsuit filed by Mexico against American gunmakers. Jonathan Lowy is co-counsel for Mexico in the case. This lawsuit is one part of the government of Mexico's effort to reduce gun crime and cartel violence in Mexico and some of those harms spread into the United States and other countries as well. The Tucson Corridor from Tucson, Arizona to Nogales, Sonora, is one of the three largest gun smuggling corridors in the U.S. and over the past few years has become a hotspot for seizures of ammunition and firearms headed south. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Kamara. The Biden administration says it's poised to issue new sanctions against Russia. These are to be announced tomorrow, one week after the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. U.S. officials blame Russian President Vladimir Putin for his death. Stocks opened higher this morning after another blockbuster earnings report from a closely watched computer chip maker. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrials jumped about 320 points in early trading. Investors had sky-high hopes for chipmaker NVIDIA, which is at the center of the artificial intelligence boom, and the company did not disappoint. NVIDIA's sales more than doubled last year, while profits soared to nearly $30 billion. The chipmaker also offered an upbeat forecast for the current quarter. Japan's Nikkei stock index hit a record high overnight, eclipsing the old record set way back in 1989. Home sales picked up last month, rising more than 3% from December's level. Sales of existing homes are still down from this time last year, though. According to the National Association of Realtors, the average selling price in January was just over $379,000. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. It's NPR. 
A major hospital system in Alabama is stopping, for now, all in vitro fertilization treatments, or IVF. The process helps people who are seeking to become pregnant. But the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System says it has to check its legal risks following this week's decision by the Alabama Supreme Court. The state court says that frozen embryos are children. It is not yet clear if it is a crime in Alabama to destroy frozen embryos. The Environmental Protection Agency recently tightened the standards on air pollution from soot. Health experts have welcomed the move, but NPR's Alejandro Barunda reports two new studies suggest those stricter limits might not go far enough. The new studies looked at soot air pollution in different parts of the country, alongside millions of medical records. The main findings weren't complicated. When it comes to pollution from tiny particles, we found that there's no safe level. That's Yaoang Wei. He's a researcher at Harvard and led one of the studies. People over 65 living in places with more soot pollution were much more likely to develop heart problems like arrhythmias or even heart failure. That was true even at pollution levels lower than the new standard. Soot comes from burning fossil fuels like diesel or coal. It also comes from dust or industrial production. The particles can get into people's bloodstreams and cause long-term health damage. Alejandra Barunda, NPR News. Officials in Venezuela say at least 14 people have died in a mine collapse. The mine reportedly was illegally digging for gold. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Schwab, with Schwab investing themes like artificial intelligence, renewable energy, or pet passion. Over 40 themes to choose from. Learn more at schwab.com. This is NPR. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The conservation voters of Pennsylvania, Seeds, Penn Future, and the Delaware Valley Action Groups have banded together to address the environmental quality of Pike County. They're hosting a Pike County community conversation on the environment this Saturday from 3 to 5. Ed Gregert is with Delaware Valley Action, and he joins us now. Good morning, Ed. Uh, Good morning, Tim. Nice to be here. Thanks for being here. Uh, Why did uh, these groups uh, all decide to band together to to have this conversation about the environment in Pike County? What what motivated this? Well, I think uh, a number of um, issues motivate it. Uh, We've had a number of issues recently uh, um, dealing with the environmental issues, dealing particularly with the aquifer uh, around the Milford area, Milford Township area in Pike County, uh, where there was to be a, a proposed mega uh, warehouse construction right almost on top of the aquifer as well as right next to uh, an environmentally protected uh, stream called the Sauk Hill stream and so we had actually success in uh, that uh, proposal actually was withdrawn by the developers but after a lot of community engagement uh, mobilization and so I think that particular issue then uh, caused all of us to think what other kinds of issues are on the minds of citizens along the Delaware, not just in Pike, of course, because the Delaware has two sides. Um, but so we decided, what? let's listen to people to hear what their concerns are, what are their priorities in terms of the environmental quality of our community. And are you hearing these things just on your own? And then when you reached out to these other groups, were they feeling the same kinds of things or hearing the same kinds of things from folks in the community? Absolutely. In fact, they came to us mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, Delmar Valley Action has created a, a community engagement center in Milford um, as a place for groups to meet 
And so uh, the other organizations were looking for how we can mobilize, how can we get uh, uh, concerned citizens together in a place. Uh, and so we said we'd be loved, we'd love to host this event. And so it was really the, the concern of the three environmental organizations that came to us to say, let's let's put something together to hear from the community. Yeah, and I want to talk to you more about the Community Engagement Center uh, that DVA has. Uh, but first, I want to talk a little bit more about this this uh, community, uh, you know, gathering. You, you, you both, you all seem to have similar uh, types of missions, a similar viewpoint on the environment. Um, but, you know, of course, different organizations. Um, I just wondered, you know, how has it been cooperating with the uh, the other groups? I mean, it's been, you're, you're correct, that we all have the same general kind of outlook, but we have different missions as organizations. And it's been really great to see those missions mesh together. Uh, some of us are kind of uh, across the board uh, citizen uh, action advocacy. Others are specifically looking at uh, legislative initiatives in the environmental area. Another one is looking at how can we elect, um, how can we have elected officials that uh, actually share our concerns for the environmental quality. And others are simply an education community would have without any involvement in political activity at all, but to make the, the community aware of the environmental issues that are affecting them. Uh, conservation voters of Pennsylvania, not, not conservative voters of Pennsylvania, conservation voters of Pennsylvania on their website uh, has uh, a way to take action, basically saying that Pennsylvania's next budget must prioritize the environment. Do you feel that uh, the state is prioritizing environment uh, at this time? Well, actually, um, no, we don't, <laughs> uh, because the governor's uh, proposed budget actually uh, doesn't move in the direction of alternative fuels. And so actually the, the conservation voters of Pennsylvania led a, uh, a sign-on letter uh, activity this last week uh, to send a letter to the governor and the legislature uh, uh, the concerns that we're headed in the wrong direction if we focus, if we continue to focus on his neighboring counties. And of course, some of our newly elected officials are in favor of maintaining uh, fracking, the level of fracking. Some are in fact in, in support of expanding it. Um, we're also looking at the lack of public transportation in Pike County. And so as a way of hopefully uh, getting people out of their cars and into public transportation, we would like some systems. Um, and also the whole issue of recycling. Uh, we have a, a system here, maybe everyone does, I don't know, where the companies use a, um, a single stream uh, policy where everything in the household or businesses is dumped into a, a single stream and then supposedly sorted out recycling from others uh, at a, a later point somewhere somewhere outside of the state, perhaps. Um, and we're not happy with that because the county and the state doesn't have an effective recycling program. What are the other issues you are addressing are some of the severe weather events caused by climate change? What are some of those issues that you hope to talk about at this community conversation on Saturday? Well, actually, we're again, we're looking to listen to people to see what they are. You know, all, all too often on, we're actually told <laughs> what uh, the issues are, what you should be concerned about. And obviously, if somebody asks a question, that'll be dealt with. But we're really here to listen to see what people's concerns are. Um, obviously, the, the extreme weather situations um, caused by climate change are, are I'm sure, are going to be a concern that we're going to hear from from the citizens here in Pike County. 
If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Ed Greger from Delaware Valley Action about an upcoming Pike County community conversation on the environment, which is Saturday uh, from 3 to 5. It's uh, co-sponsored by the Conservation Voters of Pennsylvania, SEEDS, uh, and Penn Future, along with Delaware Valley Action. And for folks who may not be familiar with Delaware Valley Action, you're a nonprofit based in Milford, uh, committed to promoting justice, respect, equality, constitutional rights. Um, we're talking about Pike County, and, and you're based in Milford, but you you have members from all over the, the tri-state region here. We certainly do. And as I just alluded to earlier, the, uh, the, we're not limited to Pike County because the issues, of course, go across the Delaware Valley, and that's on both or all sides of the, of the Delaware. Uh, but also, uh, when it comes time to get involved in political action, we are a nonpartisan organization. We're 501c4, so we can uh, both endorse and be involved in campaigns uh, on the basis of the candidates or the legislative values not their party. And so a lot of organ- a lot of people, individuals in New York and New Jersey um, are working with us uh, to make sure that change happens in Pennsylvania uh, or that uh, some sorts of change don't happen in Pennsylvania uh, in, in each of the elections. So, yes, very much uh, folks on both sides of the river uh, come over here. Uh, they're involved in our political action. They're involved in our environmental actions. And they're involved just in our, our community events. We hold monthly events uh, in Milford at our new Community Action Engagement Center. And oftentimes the participants come from Sussex, from Orange, from from uh, other counties across uh, outside of Pike County. You're not affiliated with any political party, uh, yet you do – you are politically active, I, I would say. Is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. And in line with uh, our tax status as a 501c4 – uh, we can be up to 49.9% of our budget and our activities in uh, the political arena. We can't coordinate. We don't coordinate with political uh, organizations. We are not affiliated with any political party. We endorse on the basis of values, and we endorse uh, people of all parties, Democrat, Republican, Greens, whatever, uh, based on, on the shared values. And um, the recent recently, uh, Joe Adams uh resigned from the Pennsylvania House of Representatives in District 139. There's a special election to be held. They have uh, reported last night about some of the folks that are uh, running for that seat. Uh, any any comments on, on this special election? Yeah, um, absolutely. In fact, we're holding a, um, a stuffing event next week, uh, next a week from Saturday, uh, to uh, get uh, our voices out to... Uh, registered voters about who we think are the better candidates for that position for uh, replacing immediately Joe Adams because he resigned effective immediately. So it's, we'll have two elections on April 23rd. One is the, a special election just to fill his seat for the remainder of his term, which runs through the end of this year, as well as a primary election to select nominees for the general election in November, both for this seat, but of course for all local and statewide and, and national uh, elections as well. So yes, we very much, we one candidate has come to us for an endorsement and uh, she is in the process right now of, of, um, of seeking and getting an endorsement from us. Yeah, and it's an important uh, election, a special election, because his resignation tipped the balance of control in the House in Pennsylvania to Democrats, uh, and uh, it, it could be a, a 
two seat advantage if he if a Democrat wins here or it could go back to a tie, I believe. But anyway, it's a crucial election uh, in the state. Uh, want to also talk to you about your uh, your drop in center, your community engagement center. Sorry, it's a, a drop in. Uh, folks can show up. What what are some of the things that folks can uh, do there, and 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 why is it important to have this sort of uh, open engagement center for the community? Well, they're really in in Pike County. There is no place for individuals to meet as community members or as organizations or clubs to get together and just meet that kind of space um, and for nonprofit organizations to hold their events at doesn't exist or hasn't existed. And so we at DBA said that's something that we could contribute. And so we went to our members um, and said, look, if you guys can pledge on a recurring basis, sounds like NPR, uh, <laughs> to pay the rent and the utilities, we will make the commitment to open it and, and refurbish it and everything. And so in January, we opened the Community Engagement Center for three purposes. One is simply as a drop-in. There's coffee, brewing, people come and, and talk. But folks, particularly on the senior citizen level, have no place otherwise to go. Uh, it's also a place you could drop in and there's puzzles under, jigsaw puzzles underway. There's a ping pong table. Um, there's also, it's a, as I mentioned, a place for groups uh, to hold their events, like what's happening on Saturday this week, where other organizations come together and, and use our space as, a, as a, a place. And the thirdly, there's a free store. And what this is, we're focusing right now on early parenting. And so we have hours on three days a week where individuals can come in, no questions asked, uh, if they need diapers, if they need wipe, baby wipes, if they need uh, cleaning materials, if they need menstrual products, uh, those are free for the having uh, at our free store. Uh, because, again, these kinds of services, outside of food pantries, which we coordinate with as well, but we're not handling food, um, these services just aren't available. Uh, and although it's, it's, people don't assume that uh, there's need I uh, don't know that there is need in Pike County because it appears that folks are fairly affluent. There's a great deal of uh, food insecurity and housing insecurity, and uh, and people really are in need. And so we are now seeing a great, uh, quite a bit of traffic coming through our free store to take advantage of this opportunity. Yeah, and unfortunately, that seems to be a, a theme throughout the the region. Uh, Ed Gregor with uh, Delaware Valley Action, uh, Delaware Valley Action, along with. Conservation voters of Pennsylvania Seeds and Penn Future are holding a listening event on the environment, a Pike County community conversation Saturday from three to five. It is at the DVA Community Engagement Center, which is on Broad Street in Milford. There's more information about how to sign up uh, at DelawareValleyAction.org. Also, uh, information about uh, conservation voters at ConservationPA.org or information about Seeds at SeedsGroup.net. Ed Gregert, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Tim. All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, it's Student Press Freedom Day, a day dedicated to raising awareness of challenges student journalists face. Our own student journalist intern, Marin Scotton, has a, re- a report right after this break. This is Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill supporters include Sullivan Catskills Visitors Association. SullivanCatskills.com Catskill Brewery Brewing ales, lagers, and mixed fermentation beers in a LEED Gold certified building plus a food truck and beer garden at exit 96 off Route 17 in Livingston Manor CatskillBrewery.com 
and listeners like you who donate at WJFFradio.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Each hour of On Point is a journey to help make complicated issues understandable. Every issue brings more questions, like how did we get here? Why is this happening? And what does it mean? And how do we fix it? So let's figure this out and make sense of the world together. Join me weekday mornings at 11 here on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. February 22nd today is Student Press Freedom Day. It's a day dedicated to raising awareness of the challenges student journalists faced, celebrating their contributions to their schools and communities, and taking actions to protect and restore their First Amendment freedoms. Radio Catskill reporter Marin Scotton, a student journalist herself, is speaks to Hannah Olson, another student journalist, advocating for student press freedom and its importance on the future of journalism. February 22nd is Student Press Freedom Day, a day dedicated to raising awareness of the challenges student journalists face, celebrating their contributions to their schools and communities, and taking actions to protect and restore their First Amendment freedoms. This year's theme is powerfully persistent. Joining us today is Hannah Olson, the editor-in-chief of the Mountain View High School Oracle in Los Altos, California. She's experienced student media censorship firsthand, but with the help of the Student Press Law Center, also known as the SPLC, she asserted her rights as a student journalist and has since been a strong advocate for student press freedom. It's a day that really brings to light um, issues within our local communities regarding censorship of um, student newspapers, um, the importance of passing new voices laws in states in which they may not already be passed. Um, And overall, I think it's about celebrating the work of student journalists who continue to push the boundaries and push for um, more protection for student journalists across the United States, because unfortunately, there aren't um, these new voices laws that are passed around all of um, the United States. And yeah, I think Student Press Freedom Day is about celebrating and acknowledging the work of students who continue to fight for better protections for student journalists. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the new voices law. Can you tell me what that is and how it supports and empowers student journalists? Yeah, new voices laws are pieces of um, legislature that give additional protections to student journalists. Um, I know in California, we have ed code uh, protections specifically listed that define what censorship is and give additional protections to student journalists. Um, This kind of acts as a counter to the decision in the Hazelwood versus Kohlmeyer case, which makes it so that um, across the United States, you know, in states without these new voices laws, um, student-run newspapers may not have full autonomy to publish without censorship because um, it is a school-affiliated publication. Um, This also applies to yearbook, any student-run publication. But yeah, these new voices laws are really what allows um, student journalists, at least in my state of California, to publish without fear of retribution, fear of censorship, and it really allows for stories that are important to communities to be told. And I know you've experienced student media censorship firsthand. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience and how it led you to doing some of this advocacy work? Last year, when I was an editor for my school's uh, newspaper, the Mountain High School Oracle, we had writers who were working on an article that was very investigative about sexual harassment at our school. 
and it included a lot of really really important but also very like jarring student stories about sexual harassment there was also a focus on digital harassment through social media um and this article was really thoroughly investigated and um administration became heavily involved in the process of editing that article and we were strongly encouraged to take out specific details from the article change names to make them anonymous Overall, we were encouraged not to publish the article at all because we were told that it would have negative impacts on our community. Um, there were concerns over how the article would reflect on the students or reflect on the school. And yeah, we've received a lot of pressure um, to change article content. And really through meeting with an SPLC attorney through SPLC's um, hotline that is available through their website, our student journalists received a lot of guidance that allowed them to just push forward and continue publishing the story because we knew that we were um, in the right to do so according to our California Ed Code protections. Yeah, so despite a lot of pressure not to publish this story, um, which is really difficult for student journalists because it's tough when you get confronted by a, a group of people, a group of adults in a position of power who are telling you this is bad, like you shouldn't publish this, this is going to potentially do harm to your community. And it was really important for us to have the, a tool like the SPLC's hotline, which gave us a lot of reassurance that we could publish so long as we weren't, um, you know, committing libel, libel or slander, which we weren't. So, yeah, that was that's just a recap of my experience with uh, censorship and attempted censorship. So the piece was actually published. Yeah, we did end up publishing the piece. What was the reception like? Reception from the community was really positive. I think students were glad to see these stories be told, which made us even more reassured that we had gone through with pu with publishing the article. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of uh, talk about the content of the article just because of the very nature of the subject, which is sexual harassment. Um, the administrative response was not so positive. I think that administration still wishes that parts of the article had not been published. Um but overall, I would say the community response from the article was very appreciative that we had been bringing this story to light because it was something that students could, unfortunately, a lot of them could relate to. So that was why we thought it was so important that we persist um, and publish this work. Mm -hmm. And what advice do you have for other student journalists who may be dealing with similar First Amendment freedoms? I would say that if you're ever concerned about whether you're in the ability to publish an article or not, whether you, if you have questions about what parts of a story you can publish, I would say to use your resources and use the tools that are offered by organizations like the SPLC. Um, you can reference their website and use their hotline. You can get matched with an SPLC attorney, um, if you are ever facing censorship. And overall, I would, I would really encourage student journalists to persist and to keep pushing, um, keep fighting for their ability to publish because I think student press, student press freedom and autonomy of student publications is so important, especially right now in the climate of the United States. We want to make sure that student journalists are protected and able to publish the stories that are important because that's really a crux for our democracy. So I would really encourage um, perseverance and persistence from student journalists who may be going through tough times just like my newspaper was. Mm -hmm. And why is it important not just for other students, but for the general public to be aware of the challenges that student journalists face? Well, like I said, I think student journalism is a really important part of our like foundational local democracy. I think it's a way that in my school, a lot of students are informed about what's happening on their campus. For a lot of students at my school, it's probably the only print newspaper that they're going to read because most, you know, teenagers 
students my age are not sitting down in the morning and reading an actual physical newspaper. Um, I think it's really important for people to be aware of the challenges that student journalists face so that we can uplift and support our local politicians, our local student publications, because they're such a crux for community and for democracy at a really local level. Mm -hmm. And what's next for you and what are your goals as a student journalist? And are you still at the same high school? Kind of what's coming up for you this year? Yeah, I'm still at the same high school this year. Um, I'm a co-editor-in-chief of my school newspaper, which has been such an incredible experience being in that leadership role. I think what's next, I really hope that, if anything, I guess my ongoing like work in support of Student Press Freedom can ensure that my school's journalism program is protected and is safe. I hope that when my brothers come to my high school, they can have a newspaper that is as robust and publishes as important of stories as the newspaper that I've had for the past four years, the Oracle. Um, I think that's the goal of my work is just to ensure that our student newspaper is protected because I would hate to see it be compromised in any way in the long run. And I think that it's something that's really worth protecting. That was Hannah Olson, the editor-in-chief of the Mountain View High School Oracle. In Liberty, I'm Marin Scotton for Radio Catskill. And again, Maren's gotten our own student journalists and intern at NYU. Thank you for that story. And we hope that student journalists uh, go on to become full-time journalists, like the journalists we're going to talk to next from New York Focus. New York Focus, the independent nonprofit newsroom investigating power in the Empire State, explaining how the state really works. They're conducting a survey to better understand New Yorkers' news needs. We'll talk to them next, right after a quick break. This is Radio Chatsko. This week on This American Life, a former addict, former thief, ex-con, returns to the scene of his crimes to coach Little League, trying to give back. These are tough street kids, and the first day of practice, they act up, don't listen. He yells, tells them about his time in the penitentiary, which turns out to be a mistake. They just make fun of him. Then on the second day, well, listen. Saturday at 6 on Radio Catskill. Hey, this is DJ Chucks of Old School Sessions. Please join me and select a Starkey at our new time, 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. Saturday night. Old School, baby. Old School, baby. Old School, baby. Old School, baby. That's Old School Sessions right here on WJFF, 8 to midnight, Saturday night, only on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Radio Catskill has partnered with New York Focus, New York's only nonprofit statewide newsroom, to provide in-depth journalism that explains how decisions made in Albany impact communities across the state. Now, New York Focus is conducting a listener survey to understand how to better meet the information needs of New Yorkers. Yet essential feedback will allow New York Focus to report on more stories that meet listener needs. Uh, Alex, Alex Ariaga and Kate Harlow are from New York Focus, and they're joining us now with more. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about the survey and, and why that's so important, but I want to remind folks about the work that you guys do. I mean, you know, I've explained you're a nonprofit newsroom uh, investigating how the state really works. We've had you on several times to talk about that. Can you talk a little bit about when you launched and, and why you launched? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm uh, the audience engagement editor with New Focus, um, and uh, we launched in 2020, so about um, almost four years ago, um, 
and we're the state's only uh, statewide nonprofit newsroom. We kind of launched um, to fill a, what we see as a gap in um, reporting on policy coming out of Albany. And um, so over the last few years, we've kind of taken on that role in reporting um, on statewide government and also um, local government across the state. And that's um, part of the work that we are doing with this um, listening tour. And um, in, the, in doing so, we also often partner with media organizations across the state um, to help distribute for free the reporting that we do. Um, we often share our stories with Radio Catskill as well. Yeah, that's a great part of this partnership is being able to share that information uh, that's uh, sometimes not always reported, especially, uh, you know, since the local news ecosystem has been facing relentless cuts over the years. You report on your website that almost half of New York's newspapers have died in the last two decades. So, you know, why is it so important for you to fill fill that gap? And, and how are you finding that effort? It's, it's, a, it's a large undertaking in a large state. Yeah, um, so that I uh, part of this project, so we are doing this audience survey, which we're trying to reach people all across the state, as well as a listening tour where we're visiting different parts of the state um, and speaking to people, um, hosting discussion groups about their experiences with local news. And so we know that, um, you know, there's been dwindling resources in media organizations all over, um, but definitely in New York State and um, we often hear um, from people across the state how they are experiencing the loss of journalists in their communities and um, the loss of uh, information about what's going on in their local governments and in statewide government as well. So you're going on the statewide uh, listening tour to to survey listeners. Um, ha- have you started already? And, and when is the next one coming up? That's a great question. We have started. We actually launched the tour in the fall, um, and our first few visits have been to Rochester, Albany, and then we visited the North Country last month. We stopped in a small town called Potsdam um, up near the Canadian border. Our next visit will be to Syracuse in March. Um, So our tour consists of those four listening sessions, as well as the online statewide survey that you mentioned. We're also conducting interviews with newsroom leaders across the state and doing some additional research on uh, the state, the landscape of local news in the state. So uh, now that you've started, what have you been hearing from folks? What are some of the things that are bubbling up? Um, Yeah, well, like I mentioned, people are definitely very aware of just the lack of basic information about their local government. I think people um, want to be engaged and want to, you know, be activated um, into improving their the communities and um, they want access to, you know, what's going on in meetings, um, you know, how can they participate? Um, and um, people, you know, don't have time to keep up with every story, but when they do look for information, they want um, in-depth quality reporting that brings them context about the issues um, that they're interested in, which often the issues that um, they bring up include crime, housing, addiction, different economic developments that are happening in their communities. Um, They want to know what's really happening with crime, with data, and accountability reporting on policy. 
Um, and, you know, we um, are different, are visiting different parts of the state because um, we're mostly, New York Focus is mostly based in New York City, and we want to um, reach different parts of the state as a statewide news org. And um, we do hear any, um, from all over that um, New York City and its politics takes up a lot of the space in media, and there's so much um, that is missing. Yeah. Um, I think we still have a, you, Alex. Kate, did we lose you there? I'm here. Oh, you're there. Okay, great. Uh, this is, um, we're having a bit of a, a power issue here in our area, so oh, no. that's what seems to be happening. Uh, maybe um, the gremlins in the machine. Um, this is uh, this is a, a form of journalism called audience engagement journalism. When you go out into mm-hmm. the community, um, can you explain a little bit what that is and why that's a key pillar of of New York Focus's work and and why it matters so much? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Um, I think um, traditionally journalism often functions in a way that reporters are considered sort of experts and they decide what's important um, from the research or the reporting that they're doing. And then they go out and report a story and tell people um, what they think people need to know. Um, engagement journalism is shorthand for kind of flipping that on its head and instead starting the reporting process and the information gathering based on what people in the community want to know. So asking them questions about an issue, what are they having trouble finding, what kinds of questions are they asking, and then using that to direct the reporting. Um, Yeah, is there anything you would add to that, Alex, about New York Focus in particular? Um, yeah, I guess just that, um, in audience engagement, um, we also include just how, yeah, where are we, uh, where can people find us? Um, where are we showing up? And that's one thing that we also are hearing from people is, you know, um, where can we find this information? Where can we find your reporting? Um, and, um, you know, we'll um, we'll share that the best way to follow us is our newsletter um, and um, our website, nysfocus.com, and um, following us on our different uh, social media platforms, which are all nysfocus. Yeah, and so and to, to also to specifically get to the survey, how can folks uh, access the survey and uh, take that in? Is there a, a timeline that you're looking to complete this by? Um, uh, is that at so, newyorkfocus.com? Yes. Okay. Uh, so the survey is at nyfocus.com backslash survey. Okay. Um, and we are, uh, we'll be conducting the survey. We'll be leaving it open for a few more weeks and um, we'll have a report coming out um, in the spring um, where we will um present the findings from the survey and the listening sessions and distribute that to media organizations and other civic organizations across the state. Great. We look forward to hearing those results and we encourage folks to get involved. Uh, Tell us what you think. Uh, NYSFocus.com. Take the survey and let them know what's important to you. Local news. uh, uh, You guys do a great job covering climate, Albany, justice, uh, social justice, and more. We appreciate the partnership. Uh, Appreciate you being here too. Uh, Alex, Ariaga and Kate Harlow from New York Focus. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, the Storebridge Project in Wayne County 
more information about what their good work is across the river after a break. This is Radio Chatsko. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Tanya Mosley. If you collect classic cars and you're thinking about making some room in your collection, please consider donating it. Proceeds help us bring you the NPR news that you expect for your community. Thanks in advance, and here's how to get started. We accept any vehicle, running or not. Donate your car, boat, or motorcycle at WJFFRadio.org. Hey there, I'm Cassie of Rare Pair Radio. It's a weekly showcase of primarily female artists, but also a wide range of avant-garde musicians. I will be playing the fruit of post-punk, experimental, and fringe music, only on WJFF Radio Catskill. Rare Pair Radio, Friday at 8 p.m. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The Storbridge Project is a business incubator and co-working space located in Northeast Pennsylvania. Joining us now is the Director of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Storbridge Project, George Baldwin, to talk more about their work. George, good morning. Good morning. So when we say business incubator, uh, what does that mean? What goes on at the Storbridge Project for folks? Well, we have several hats here. Um, the business incubator itself is an accelerator program where we offer um, office space for basically we're looking for tech startups um, in the Northeast region. Um, and those tech startups can be cyber forensics, um, print procurement, uh, packaging design, anybody who's using technology as a, as a way to enter the business world. And we have partners all over the Northeast that help these potential clients. Um, we are partnered with the Ben Franklin Investment, local banks, um, the Small Business Association, the Northeast Pennsylvania Alliance, the Keystone Innovation Zone. So we have lots of partners that we can help um, accelerate um, and give opportunities for businesses to, to grow quicker than they, you know, they think they can originally. So what kind of businesses are, are, are operating there now? Uh, we have currently seven businesses in here, and we have uh, cyber forensics. We have uh, a couple different uh, logistics businesses that have designed their own apps to move stuff around the world. Um, we have some Internet um, intellectual property developers and patenters. Uh, we have recruiters for the healthcare industry that have written and designed their own software to um, help reduce and streamline their recruiting process. Uh, we have um, a very successful business that does packaging design and engineering and print procurement that have written their own software to manage their accounts all over the world. Uh, currently, they are working with um, the Farmer's Dog, who does um, specially, specially designed pet products, and they're working on a current project for Beyonce we can't talk about. But, oh. um, that's all happening right here in uh, in Wayne County, Pennsylvania. Wow! Uh, so you're you're uh, you're hoping that this becomes more of a, like a tech based uh, economic growth uh, area for folks, right? I mean, uh, you, it sounds like there's a lot of tech based uh, uh, opportunities uh, uh, and uh, businesses there, right? And that's because 
um, we are below the state average in tech companies um, in Wayne County. So we're trying to build that and promote that industry um, because it's growing and we need we need some of this technology to come to Wayne County. Um, so that's our focus. And we have a co-working space on the lower level, which was the old gymnasium. We're in a the Sturbridge Project is located in a 1925 um, elementary school mm-hmm. that's been restored and purchased by the county and restored by the county. Um, we have uh, a co-working space in the basement where we have a, a dedicated gig of Wi-Fi going both directions, up and down. Um, in that space, you'll find a lot of local folks who work from home but come here to upload. We have a, a fair number of web designers. Um, art directors, um, industrial designers that work from home and need to upload files quicker and more secure. So we have that opportunity here. We also have computers down there. Uh, we have uh, six new offices coming up online March 1st um, for our incubator program. We have subdivided uh, two classrooms, which would have been two large offices into three offices each. So. We're looking at applications now for new companies coming in. Um, we're going to have a, a very potential uh, growth spurt here real soon. And how do you support uh, businesses to, to start or grow? Are there financial? Uh, is there financial support? Is there, there tax credit support? All of that. Um, we all of our partners offer, like SBA offers uh, business planning. So, and it's free of charge. So we can, if someone says, I have an idea, but I don't know if it works, we hook them right up with our small business development coordinator out of the University of Scranton. And they meet here and they start help helping uh, that, that person build their business plan. Uh, we have the Ben Franklin um, investment program that will invest uh, local banks are supporters of the Small Business Association and their loan program. Um, we offer a uh, a scaling rent and low rent here. Um, so some of these new offices coming online are $200 a month, um, and we'll share. We have a scaling, so we'll pay your utilities for the first year, and then we'll share the next year. So we have that whole opportunity. And the Keystone Innovation Zone is a – uh, tax incentive that will give up to a hundred thousand dollar tax incentive for eight years. So as you grow, um, you can have that tax incentive, and that's tax dollars right in your pocket. So, and we are the only KIZ building in Wayne County at this moment. We're trying to expand that. And KIZ is a Keystone Innovation Zone. Is that? Correct. Okay. Correct. I'm getting I'm getting cool to the lingo here. Uh, so if I were wanting to start a new business, you offer also some development and just sort of uh, you know guidance as well. Like I could show up and say, "Hey, listen, I have this idea. Uh, can you help me with it?" Absolutely. Um, you may not fit the model we have for this building, but we have um, we've started companies um, and businesses around the county. Um, we work with our partners that are already out there doing stuff, um, and that's primarily through WEDCO, which is the Wayne Economic Development Corporation. That's who runs the program here. And they're involved. That's Mary Beth Wood is the executive director there. And they're involved in everything, downtown revitalization, um, uh, the store, or the, um, sorry, the Sterling Business Park. Um, they're working on a large infrastructure program for 
um, fiber and, you know, better internet throughout the county. So they're in the, Redco is involved in everything in developmental, uh, economic development around the county. Yeah, and the Sturbridge Project is a, a, a result of a partnership between uh, Wayne Economic Development Corporation or WEDCO, the Workforce Alliance, and uh, Wayne County government. So it's uh, you know yeah. all of the stakeholders in the area coming together to try to uh, increase those business opportunities. So how how does someone get involved? Where do they go, and uh, who do they contact? They can contact me directly um, at George at StorbridgeProject dot com. Um, or they can go to our website. Um, we'll have some uh, brand new documents on there that they can actually go right in there and fill out an inquiry, and that will come to me, and we can start the conversation. Um, they can call me directly on my cell phone, um, 570-903-1761. Um, we have lots of ways we can. they can contact WEDCO directly. They can go through the Wayne County Workforce Alliance, um, who offers the programming here. Um, we do have some training opportunities um, in this building starting in April. We have uh, Penn State coming in with the business leadership classes. It's a, cert- a 16-week certi- certificate program. Uh, we have recovery to work programs. We have all kinds of stuff starting up this spring um, from from middle school through whatever age you want to be. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen that you guys have held some uh, small business webinars. Uh, and so those cover anything from, you know, uh, money to uh, holiday marketing to, you know, other business toolkit information. So that that stuff is coming up for the spring uh, in March, or do you, do you have a date yet? Uh, we have um, the Workforce Alliance will be posting all of that on our calendar, hopefully this week. Um, we're putting the final details on it, um, but we will be doing uh, – um, our training lab is going under construction phase right now, and it'll be available April 1st um, with our offices coming up March 1st. Um, and we will start our full-blown training at that point um, starting in April. I think April 3rd is our very first uh, training opportunity. All right. Uh, George Baldwin, Director of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Storebridge Project. There's more information at storebridgeproject.com. Uh, George, before we go, did Beyonce call your cell phone? <laughs> Well, maybe not. <laughs> Is she using the prototyping lab? Um, that's one thing we did not talk about. Um, <laughs> we are actually designing a uh, – we will be using our prototype lab to design a product for her. Yes. Aha. That's, okay. There yeah. you go. Breaking news, Beyonce yeah. news out of Wayne County. Uh, George. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll get a preview of the All Things Liberty Winter Festival, which is happening this Saturday at uh, Liberty High School. This is Radio Chatsko. I'm Maria Hinojosa, this week on Latino USA. The story of Roland Sylvain, a Haitian-American immigrant who's now in deportation proceedings, all because of a little-known Trump administration policy decision known as the matter of Castro tomb. It's like a kryptonite in this house. We don't talk about what if it doesn't work out. That's this week on Latino USA. Thursday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The All Things Liberty Winter Festival is taking place Saturday at the Liberty High School Gymnasium. Uh, it features a variety of vendors, uh, informational tables and games for all ages. I spoke to Community Schools Coordinator Stacy Feisel about the All Things Liberty Winter Festival. Liberty always had something called the, the Winter Carnival, 
And that was when a bunch of kids would come out. We would have games. We'd have fun. And it was just a great time that the community would be able to just come together inside the school. So as the new coordinator, I wanted to bring that back. And so what we did is we changed the name to a festival, and we brought in a lot of activities. And in order to bring those activities in, we would also bring in the parents, which we would also have some of the resources, community resources for them to um, be able to see what we have in the community. Who are some of the local organizations that are participating? We have uh, actually quite a few. Um, we have the Liberty Library. Um, we have the PBA, the Liberty Town Parks and Rec. We also have Cal Ripkins Baseball. We have the uh, Sullivan County Department of Social Services. Those are the kinds of organizations that we have. We actually have the the um, Sullivan County Workforce coming in as well. And that is something that I didn't even know it existed here in Sullivan County. So trying to, com- you know, connect the parents with with these organizations is going to be a um, kind of a, a thing that would help a lot of people, knowing that there's these kinds of organizations they can always um, refer back to. And speaking of helping people, uh, the concession stand will have some food and snacks. Sales of those concession stand items are going to support the class of 2025? That's correct. So the juniors are going to benefit from this as well. And what is the Snack Pack Initiative? Can you tell folks about that? The Snack Pack is actually an organization we have here at the school for any student that does not have food within the reaches when they get at when they get home. So the snack pack actually provides bag food for them to have while they're home on the weekends or maybe an extended vacation. And we would like to have people donate to this organization because it's really ran on donations. And what we're going to do at the festival, we're going to have a box there for anybody to donate. We're going to give tickets for anybody so they can actually spin the wheel and they could get Liberty swag. We're also going to have the um, drop a coin in the fish in the fishbowl. If it goes into a cup, then um, they would win a ticket as well. But any of those coins are going to add up, and that's all going to be donated to the snack pack program as well. All right. I the, do want to add yeah, that we ahead. actually have vendors as well. So craft vendors are also going to be there. And the whole the whole purpose of this whole program was to have. Um, activities to bring the kids in so they have something fun to do, but the parents would also be there so that the resources would be there for they for them to go and, and visit and to see what, what's out there. And then we have craft vendors there as well so that it, it, it creates this, this community event that everybody could benefit. So people on the outside, people on the inside, parents, children. I'm sure it's a lot of work putting it together. Are you excited? It's a lot of work, but the more and more I put it together, the more and more excited I'm, I'm, I'm getting. So I am hoping that everybody comes rushing in there and, and you know, is, is excited about all the different kinds of activities. The activities that the kids are going to actually be able to, to do has taken a little bit on the what we call the makerspace in education. It's really kind of more or less technology-based, so there's going to be a lot of technology-type activities for the students to participate in. We're going to have karaoke. We're going to have, you know, 
things like coloring, but we're going to have a green screen there as well. We're going to have some kind of robots so that kids can actually participate and see the different types of technology out there as well. So get them a little excited about that. All right. We've been talking to Community Schools Coordinator Stacy Fiesel uh, about the All Things Liberty Winter Festival, which is from 10 to 3 Saturday at the Liberty High School Gymnasium. And snow date is Saturday, March 2nd. The district asks those who are younger than uh, the ninth grade level to be accompanied by a parent or guardian. Stacy, thanks so much for talking to us today and good luck with the festival. All right. Thank you. That's all, that's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. Uh, tomorrow we'll get a preview of Driftwood, the band's performance in Walton. They are uh, an Americana folk rock band from Binghamton. We'll have a conversation with them tomorrow. A reminder, you can find uh, past episodes of the show and all of our local programming at WJFFradio.org. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Jeff Works Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York, a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And from The Cooperage Project, thecooperageproject.org. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Hey, it's Steve Inskeep. And I'm Aisha Roscoe. One of the things you can count on from NPR and this station, we've got your back. When it comes to reporting the news, bringing you facts you can count on. You can help by donating a vehicle you no longer need. That car could be worth hundreds of dollars in support or more as a donation. Think about it. We accept any vehicle, running or not, including cars, trucks, boats, RVs, motorcycles, and more. Donate at WJFFRadio.org. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Uh, NYSIG is reporting a power outage affecting about 1,440 customers in Sullivan County. Uh, the estimated restoration time they're saying now is 11, so hopefully in a couple of minutes. Uh, they're uh, sending messages via text to us here because we're impacted by that as well. Uh, in the forecast, we're looking at uh, periods of snow later today, some mixed winter precipitation possible, high getting up to 39, snow accumulation less than an inch. Tonight, uh, snow is likely with some more of that mixed winter precipitation, uh, snow accumulation one to three inches. And tomorrow, mostly cloudy with periods of rain and freezing rain in the morning, high 43. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org, and from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill, on your radio at 90.5 FM or streaming online at wjffradio.org.